Hi, I'm Nadia Cavell. I'm Ben Riva Hinks. And I'm Zachary Fall. And you're listening to Migratives, the podcast championing migrant creatives in the UK. In this episode, we talk to Alexandre Devriant, a German Lebanese French actor, producer, and voiceover artist based in London. He is known for his work on screen projects The Danish Girl and Genius Picasso and the West End production of The Jungle. We spoke about multilingual identity, the challenges of training and working as a foreign actor in the UK, and Alexander's experience of Beirut in the aftermath of the explosion. It's lovely to hear you. Lovely to hear you too. Hello, hello. So Alex, you're someone who's very multilingual. You know, you speak English, French, German, Spanish, and a few other languages even. Yeah. You have a very multicultural heritage. So we'd just love to know more and for you to take us through your background and where you grew up. Yeah. Cool. That's going to take up the the two hours of the podcast. <laughs> That's <laughs> no, nice. I, <laughs> no, I, it's, yes, the languages is definitely uh, sort of the biggest gift I reckon I've, I've been given by my parents um, in terms of the sort of multiculturalism. Uh, my dad is uh, German-Argentinian. So that's the one side. And then mm-hmm. my mom is from, from Lebanon. Right. And uh, I was born in Spain, but I grew up in Brussels in Belgium. And then now I live in England. So that's the, the combination in a nutshell. Right. And what other languages do you speak? I like to say, uh, you know, back in the day when we, when we would still write CVs, I would write notions of Italian, <laughs> <laughs> Dutch, and Arabic. Uh, right. which is true you know like I, I can the first two three sentences in italian or dutch or arabic i'll be able to converse and then anything after that it's uh, tricky you'll need to you, swap you yeah. dabble you dabble exactly a bit <laughs> yeah. of dabbling <laughs> that's still pretty impressive Be- better I mean. than no dabbling yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> and so how long did you live in each country well spain was very short. It was just my dad's first job. So we stayed for two years in Spain. Then I went for two years to Germany, actually, to Bonn, mm-hmm. which used to be the ex-political capital uh, mm. of Germany. And then from Bonn, we moved to Brussels when I was about four. And then I stayed in Brussels until the age of 19. Right. And then from there, I moved to Birmingham for three years and then uh, London. And then it's been London since 2008. Wow. And um, how were the arts regarded in your family? Yeah, that's a, it's a, it, it, it actually b- better than one might think, but never to the extent of making a profession right. out of being an, out of being an artist. So, uh, you know, my, my stage name Devriant uh, is not my real name. It's not my passport name, but mm-hmm. it, it, it has history because my grandma, my Argentinian grandma, her uh, uh, mother was called Devriant and the Devriants in the 19th century in Germany were were directors and actors. Oh. So there is that part there is that strand of my family history where you know there has been performance uh, performances as part of 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 the family's profession but then in the latter you know in, uh, generations not so much. And uh, my my Lebanese granddad funnily enough so the other strand of the family has been a sort of hobby actor forever. Uh, oh. And he was still performing in Beirut uh, uh, on one of the stages that got unfortunately hit by the explosion uh, three years ago. So at the age of 84, he was still still performing wow. as an amateur actor. And it's probably him who, you know, gave me the, the sort of passion for acting. 
So there was mm. always a love for acting in the family. But then to say, do you know what? Why don't you become a professional actor? I had to break through a, th- a, a, a few barriers uh, to do that and then to gain the respect, especially from the Middle Eastern side. Mm. Right. And so when did you decide that's what you wanted to do and, and how did they react? Well, I was fortunate enough to have a, a parents that were relatively open mm-hmm. to the idea of at least, say, studying drama or theater, right? So, so the plan was, the master plan was to go to <laughs> Dublin, to Trinity College. And I had actually gone to Trinity College to do an interview and to do the drama and theater studies course they have in the Samuel Beckett Center, mm. which was super exciting for me. You know, I used to love theater of the absurd when I was younger. I mean, I still do, but I had a real passion for it back in the day. And so I was like, I'm going to Dublin. And then I didn't un- end up getting the, the grades. So they gave me a conditional offer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I didn't end up getting the grades I needed to go. So the second choice, and that was obviously, uh, you know, the backup plan of dad. He was like, okay, well, this is your first choice. But anything after that, any other choices will have to be something real or something serious. Oh, right. So, wow. Yes. Okay. That's why I ended up in Birmingham doing economics and international relations. Not so much by choice, but more by failure of study <laughs> oh no and had you looked at british drama schools before you went to birmingham had you considered uh, this country to train and and even remain in funnily no, funnily enough i i hadn't um really looked at sort of acting school you know mm. i looked at universities and, and and their sort of drama studies but i'd never looked at, at drama school drama school only came in the third year of my of my studies at birmingham i was writing a uh, my dissertation on uh, the Europeanization of Turkey. Because back in the day, about 11 years ago, Turkey, there was still, you know, we were thinking Turkey would become part of the EU and, and there was a real willingness from Turkey to become part of the European Union, which obviously has changed nowadays. Yeah. And um, and uh, that's when I started looking into drama schools and I was thinking, okay, so, you know, doing an MBA or doing a master's, etc., wasn't really what I wanted to do. And I, I thought if I can try out for a drama school and if I can get into uh, say one of the top 15 like an NCDT accredited school mm. then maybe I can become a professional actor and then luckily one school took me <laughs> because I had no idea how to prepare for a drama school audition <laughs> right like literally I genuinely did not know properly how to prepare like how to really you know prepare my monologues I'd never sang a song in front of a panel oh wow so did you have you had you didn't have any um help or anyone to help you out prepare your speeches or pick your speeches anything like that like literally literally no one uh, not even my granddad because he like that's that was just beyond what what he had ever done mm. and there was there was no one else and in my immediate circle uh the drama people that i performed with they were all gone by the time i was in third year mm. and so there was there was there was literally no one there so i prepared myself with uh, the people that lived with me who couldn't be let's say further away from <laughs> theater in terms of their fields of interest and uh and uh and i remember very vividly auditioning um for one of the drama schools uh, i mean i'm happy to name the name of bristol old vic mm. which was a school that i would have loved to go to uh, and uh the song that i had chosen was uh, michael buble's feeling good mm. and uh and sort of halfway through the song i there's a lot of pauses in that song where there's just an orchestra playing and stuff right so i would just sort of tap my foot when the pauses were happening <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and then halfway through the song, I forgot the lyrics. And then at one point, the 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 the, pan, the, the lady behind the, the desk is like, uh, is that it? And I was like, yeah, that's it. And at yeah, that moment, I knew. Oh, um, oh no. I did no. not get into Bristol. <laughs> Actually, I have a friend who was very similar to you. Like, she had no idea how to audition and she had no support. And I think her 
first time trying, she like did this monologue where she pretended to give birth. Oh, really? Choices. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Choices. So, yeah. <laughs> she did not get in the first time, but she uh, the, did eventually. The joys of auditioning. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it's definitely a steep le learning curve. Hmm. Um, then I went to RADA and because I, I didn't live in London, but in Birmingham hmm. and I didn't go to a lot of theater in Birmingham because just there wasn't that much theater out there in Birmingham at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember very well the RADA question. The lady was like, okay, so um, what plays have you gone to see in the last few months? And, you know, and, and, and I, and I literally, the only thing I went to see was the history boys in, uh, in the weekend when I came down to London and that's it. And okay. What are your, uh, what are UK, um, what, what British, uh, theater writers, uh, do you, uh, oh God. like, or something like, like it was very, it, it felt very, it felt very patronizing mm. and I didn't feel like there was space for me. Oh. Well, did you feel in general when you were auditioning that you're, Kind of your being from abroad would might be an obstacle or or did you feel like no it could in fact be a strength how did you think about that at the time at the time i definitely thought it was an obstacle especially because of my accent mm. uh, which was much which was, which was much stronger at the time and also um because it still had the remains of my american drama school but it also had a lot of german in it mm. and also because we didn't i didn't do so much you know, especially in that third year, not doing any theater, there was a real lack of of uh, a speech and vocal quality. Hmm. So I am, I'm pretty sure I was competing against some, you know, some 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 performers who had done lots and lots of, of vocal work. Hmm. And uh, I, I think that was that was to my detriment for sure. Hmm. And it sounds from what you were just saying that, well, some schools certainly made you feel that. Um, absolutely, and I'm I'm not you know uh, that it's one particular person uh, yeah, in that mm, of room with me from Rada, so obviously I'm not I'm not generalizing. Since then, I've worked with plenty of people from from that school. Yeah. However, at that moment in time, um, that that's what it made me feel. And then with Drama Studio London, it was the they they seemed very keen and interested in in this sort of bundle or this package that mm. I have to offer, mm. you know, which was which was very refreshing for me. Great, yeah. And um, were there uh, many international students in that drama school? There were not that many. No, there was about we were, how many were we? About five, maybe. Yeah, mm. around five, five internationals. Yeah. And do you feel the school uh, took uh, your international background into account when training you? And do you feel they they prepared you in any way in how the industry um, might uh, react to you or might receive you? Uh so the potential was there. They saw, they liked the potential. They found the, the multiculturalism interesting. Mm. However, once we started training, the emphasis was very much, and again, this is 11 years ago, the emphasis was very much on if you want to succeed in the UK, you have to speak RP. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, there was no real scope or room or understanding of what the industry or the market would look like for international actors like us like where do we place it's more like no 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 you need to learn mm -hmm. that accent mm -hmm. and if you don't have the accent you're probably not going to work here that's uh, as simple as that you know that was the extent of it that was the extent of it yeah because yeah it was a huge emphasis on just classical theater on, on getting rp uh, down to a t yeah. and um essentially trying to fit in by a little bit like a lot of us do if we want to you know um audition for american roles and we learn the u.s accent to just say, okay, just perfect your British accent and then you can pass for British and then maybe you'll get to work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did that, did that affect the castings they gave you while you were there? 
Well, uh, in, it, they initially they gave me some really cool. The first casting I did was actually a, a, a Syrian a Syrian uh, guy in quite a cool place. Syrian guy that meets a British girl, uh, which was which was interesting, um, w- which I enjoyed playing. And then afterwards, they gave me a lot of just the uh, uh, British characters, um, mm. which especially when I had to play, for example, Silvius and As You Like It and do a West Country accent. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, st- I struggled a bit, but I made the most of it. I mean, it, it was it was still fun, you know, and you can work on it. Um, yeah. But uh, but it's it's. I mean, have I done West Country castings since? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So you graduated, and then you so you stayed in London. Well, actually, did you stay in London straight away, or did you hesitate between different places? What happened? Then? It's a good question. Initially, for me, it was clear that I was going to stay in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um. And try it here, and the, just sort of the, the German access came out a little bit later to say, okay, well, why, why don't I open up the markets and, and and include Germany as well? But yeah, initially it was it was definitely try out in the UK, especially London, and and see how far you can get. Hmm. And did um, when you got to Germany as well? So how did you feel received there? Was it quite different to to London? Is it very similar? Germany, you're a bit of a uh, you're a bit of a novelty and almost like you come from another planet. If if you're German, but you've trained in the UK, <laughs> you've worked in the UK for a few years, and then all of a sudden you appear on, 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 on the German market out of nowhere, you know, and then these people are, but who's this guy? Like, wh- where, <laughs> where's, where's he coming from? So there was a little bit of, um, of sort of, yeah, surprise at, 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 at my arrival, um, because it's just pretty, it's very unusual to have, you know, Germans train in Germany. That's just the way it is because we have extremely good drama schools in Germany. You do, yeah. And, and, yeah, and also just, you know, saying I've done one year's training <laughs> and a lot yeah. of the actors look at me like I've done, you know, minimum four. Like that's ridiculous. Right. How can you how can you even call yourself an actor with, with one year's training, you know? Oh. But uh but uh but but it's 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 okay. Like it, it it's been Overall, I've, I've had a lot of fun working in Germany as well. Hmm. You then launched into the real world and the industry after um, Drama Studio. And so you've worked widely across film, television and theater for like British, American, French, German production companies, um, mm. including the Emmy nominated show Genius Picasso and then the film The Danish Girl starring uh, Oscar winners Eddie Redmayne and Alicia Vikander. So I mean, was this something like that you imagined would happen? As a little side note, I mean, I mean, the the listeners <laughs> obviously know this probably, but Zach uh, also worked on Genius Picasso, which was a lovely <laughs> <Yeah>. surprise <laughs> to see him as Picasso's son in various. It was great scenes. to see like a very European cast mm. in that show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are yet to uh, act in the same scenes together, but <laughs> the, the day will come. The day will come. That's for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, look, that's that's obviously it was very it's very fortunate to be able to work uh, on on this caliber of projects. Um, but I had, for example, if you had asked me, uh, where do you see in yourself in ten years when I graduated two thousand nine, and then you would have mm-hmm. listed the projects that you've listed, I would have said that's cool, but by that time I'll have played a lead role in a big series. You know, I will, right? Like right. for me, I. At the time, success was literally you. You know, be, either you play the lead character and you, you you carry a movie, or you play the lead character in a big film, or just there was a real emphasis and focus on playing the lead somewhere. 
right? Right. So even back in the day on my CV, when I did short films and I was the lead, I would always put in brackets lead, you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> just so that they know that I was the lead. But, uh, but I mean, yeah, that's totally understandable. Yeah, it, it is. But it also showed uh, and it's OK and it's good to have ambition. It's very important to be ambitious. And, it's, you know, you should never you should never ex say sorry if, if you're ambitious. However, mm. now I've come to realize that, as many people say, being a performer is a marathon, not a sprint. And the mere mm -hmm. fact that the three of us uh, in this call, and I'm not sure, Ben, whether you're you're a performer or whether you're behind the scenes or... I'm a, I'm a producer, so I um, thankfully am very, very rarely been seen on a stage. Yeah, yes. okay, but that... <laughs> but you, you're a writer as well, so you, you have an idea of like the creative yes. yeah, process. Yeah, yeah, yeah for like... sure torture yeah <laughs> yeah i mean look exactly and the, that means the four of us are still you know 11 12 years on we're still we're still working in our fields in our craft as as artists and uh that that's a that's a huge that's a huge thing and that shouldn't be underestimated so mm. i'm very thankful that 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 i'm still here and obviously 2020 has been an extremely difficult year mm. so success doesn't only mean on paper, are you the top three build performer? Yeah. But it also means the longevity of you being an artist, of telling stories that you want to tell, of growing your network, and of being able to perform and work uh, in what you call your passion. You know, that's that's a, mm -hmm. a big gift in itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's like being an actor is as much you are an actor when you act and when you don't act. Because when you don't act, you have to like survive so that you can act one day <laughs> so like the non-acting you know the non-acting is also being an actor because it's like that's the hard part like that's such a, a good point absolutely and and, and it's and yeah. it's then marrying the the notions of i am an actor when i'm not acting and i am an actor when i'm acting with i don't only identify myself as an actor or define myself through my acting because you know there's yes. always that I remember very vividly the first few years, as soon as there was two days of me not doing something that had to do with the acting world, you know, mm. you get fidgety and you feel you're missing out and you feel like you're not doing things right. And mm -hmm. other people are being, you know, are more successful or doing better or whatever. And there's all these mm. fears and expectations inside of you um, that with time you really manage to, you manage to deal with them much better. <laughs> yeah. And mm. did you feel pressure from your, your family as well when you kind of first started out in the, the industry or were they pretty kind of like take it as it comes and my parents were really really good i don't think there was a real clear understanding how the industry worked you know uh, right. from my yeah. parents perspective and even less so of an understanding from my grandparents and aunts etc because none of them had, had mm. worked in the in the acting industry so uh it, it, it also it was all a little bit airy fairy to their ears but they, they, my parents were definitely supportive my, my grandmother especially the Lebanese one is quite funny because about four years into me being an actor she's like when are you uh, so so when when is it that you're going to uh, to use your economics degree <laughs> and I'm like grandma has been four years no but you know use it why do you have it I'm like no no but I'm gonna stay an actor for a while like trust me <laughs> and then the, when she finally saw me in a few tv things and stuff that's when she goes ah okay looks like She's like, it, it's a, the real thing. It's a it real thing. It looks like it's there to stay. Yeah. <laughs> God, I, I feel like I can like hear my grandmother because my grandmother is Russian, but she was born and bred in Lebanon and she like cooks Lebanese food. And so yeah, I some of that. her soul is Lebanese. So 
So um, I can I can totally relate to the kind of mentality. Um, <laughs> you gotta love them, though. You gotta love them. They're amazing. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So you um, played multiple roles in the West End production in New York transfer of The Jungle, which is mm. an incredibly powerful, immersive play about Calais migrant camp life. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in that project and how it felt to be in to be in such a critically acclaimed and important theatrical production? And do you think that theater, I know this is such a general question and such a big one, but do you think that it can bring about real change in terms of like shifting mentalities? I mean, yes. To answer your second question, yes. And I'll elaborate on that in a second. Um, to go back to the first question, um, the jungle was was an incredible experience. And the when I saw the casting brief for the West End, um, what sort of character they were looking for, sometimes as an actor, you see briefs and you're like, this is me, like this is this is made for me. And then mm -hmm. the importance and the weight of getting those roles becomes even bigger because you're like, wow, okay, there's not that many roles like this out there. I really need to get this. And uh, I remember it was summertime and, and I auditioned for, uh, it was actually Justin, Justin Martin, one of the two directors in the room. Um, and Stephen was meant to join, but he, he didn't end up joining. And uh, uh, Julie was there as well, uh, the casting director. And it was just, yeah, it was just a really good casting. They, he was so nice and everything just gelled. You know, I mean, you guys probably know what I mean when just, I don't know, the energy is good in the room. You mm. feel light and free, you know, you start your first scene, it goes really well. Yeah. You're bouncing off of the director, you know, and just, I don't know, it's just the energy is just flowing in the right direction. So mm. um, by the time I left that casting room, I was like, this feels good. Maybe I could get this. And then a week later, lo and behold, we started rehearsals. So it was a super quick process. After one week. Yeah, it was super quick. And The Jungle, I had actually missed it when it was on at The Young Vic, but I had mm. looked at the cast, etc. And then uh, a good friend of mine, Raphael Lacloc, is was playing the character that I then ended up playing. It was just a fascinating, fascinating show. And then it ended up growing into this huge this huge thing that lasted, that sort of became part of my life for, for a year and a half and was meant to be part of my life this year as well. And, um, and as you said, in terms of kin theatre, bring about real change, the impact, the emotional impact that it had on people uh, was was pretty strong on on many 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 audience members, and you could see that not only online in the in the you know the online realm on Twitter and Facebook and the comments that people were writing, but also mm. genuinely on the field, as in the uh, charities that were attached to our show. So Good Chance Theatre, who also produced the show. Uh, with some other, uh, you know, with Sonia Friedman and, and, and the Young Vic, but also uh, Choose Love. Um, people on the ground in Calais saw a huge influx of, um, of new volunteers come in. Really? Mm, yeah, who had seen wow. the show. Oh. Um, so, you know, that we felt was, a, was, a, was an incredible sort of uh, thing to happen um, because it just showed that people's minds and hearts just opened up to to an issue that had been there for for forever but that just became much more prominent again through the show mm. Mm. so what would you say your early professional experiences taught you and in what ways did the industry differ from your expectations the early um experiences i don't know how it was for you guys but i did a lot of free work so yeah. I, mm -hmm. I gained 
you know, I gained lots of experience on fringe stages. I did lots of short films for free. Um, some R&D for free. It was just a lot of free work. Yeah. Yeah. It also meant working, having to do quite a, a lot of different jobs uh, to be able to sort of su support myself. Um, you know, I, I worked as a, I worked in, in, as a kitchen porter. I worked as a, as a waiter. I worked mm -hmm. a, for a recycling company, uh, sort of selling recycling bags. I worked as a sports journalist. Um, wow. I worked as, oh. a, as a temp. Yeah, I did all kinds of, yeah. all kinds of jobs. Yeah. And that, that is a good life lesson, I think. It's important just because it shows you that you're going to have to graft hard and you're really going to have to believe in, 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 in what you're capable of. And at the same time, yeah, it's just survival mode, really. So yeah, yeah. it, yeah, it was sure. a bit of an eye opener in that sense. But I think Drama Studio London is not like some of the other drama schools. Drama Studio London, they don't tell you um, you're going to be part of the creme de la creme of the performers in London, you know, you and, and not every door is open for you and you don't have the best casting directors and the best agents coming to see your end of year mm. show. So, you know, there's a sense of, um, I think certain other schools, you're, you're tapped on the shoulder a lot more and, uh, you're said, you know, they still tell you, you, you will definitely work with us. It was like, you will have to work really hard to be able to work, you know, mm. so. So they kind of did prepare, like manage your expectations and that. They managed them big time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they taught us, they were really good at teaching us not only how to act, but also how to be an actor. That that they did very, very well. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And you are also a prolific voiceover actor with more than 200 jobs to your name. This doesn't surprise me in the least, given your talent and how multilingual you are. But was it a difficult industry to break into nonetheless and What's your favorite thing, would you say, about voice work? I mean, voiceovers, um, now I probably, I've, I must have done, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And it was literally the plan from the start to become a voiceover artist on the side mm -hmm. because, and on the side is, is, is not something that I mean that it's a side job, but it was on the side when I graduated from drama school. I saw it as an additional means of income. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I've realized the more and more I work in it, that obviously for a lot of people, it's, it's their main source of income and it's what they do as a profession full time because it requires a lot of work and you're running your own business, yeah. but it's a fascinating, fascinating industry to be in. And it complements itself so well with, with what we do as actors in terms of the, the voice work mm -hmm. and the understanding of text. Um, and it's, and it's so much fun and there's so much variety in it, you know, from computer games to commercials, to corporate recordings, to e-learning, to dubbing, mm. you know, to lip sync. There's so many different types of voice. Yeah. That's an amazing um, industry to be part of because the games industry in itself is a huge industry and it's bigger than, you know, the cinema industry. It's bigger than the TV. It's bigger than what we do in theater. Mm. So it's, it's just a really, really good industry to be part of now because it's just ever growing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. What's the weirdest voiceover job you've done? Can you think of anything? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a, when you do computer games, you you have to you have to commit hundred percent to to various different states yeah. of mind and also <laughs> states of where your body can be. So that, that can be quite interesting sometimes, you know, when you're being told that you have to just emulate sounds of a burning man. Yes, right. but uh, but there's also and as Germans, you know, in computer games, we often have to play characters that are in, in, in war war scenarios right <laughs> and uh, no. and and i remember very vividly one of the first ever 
voice castings I did was for a 3D uh, soft porn sound recording. Oh, you know, this was my <laughs> next question if you've ever had to dub a love scene or something. A soft <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, that was literally the casting. I had to walk around the lady. It was a 3D thing that, so they were recording it 3D in the space. And then in the casting, I had to walk around her and sort of say really sensual things. And wow, it was, it, it was, it was pretty wild. And I was also offered once to dub, uh, which, which was labeled as something soft, but it ended up, I, when I saw the script, it was really hardcore stuff. And, and I told uh, this, this particular agency that it, I just didn't want to dub that. And it's not, I'm not going to tell you what the, the text was, but it was pretty explicit. <laughs> so you have your, you have your like limitation, like your limits, not your limitations, but your limits. I have, my, I have my limits. I mean, look, you know, by now, <laughs> I've you yeah, can by, by now I can I can choose yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it was it's so funny yeah. because you said earlier uh, about when you were preparing for drama school how voice was a big uh, issue in terms of preparation. You didn't have any voice training, and at that moment yeah. I immediately thought that's so interesting that now you are such a prolific voice actor as well. Yeah, yeah, that's true, but it's that's drama school as well. Again, mm. to be honest. The, em the emphasis put on voice was huge. And also when you graduate there, there will, there's, you, you will often hear big, big actors, uh, especially interestingly enough, British actors who will um, talk about the importance of, of voice training and of continuing voice training at home as well, if needs be, you know, doing 10, 15 minutes worth of voice exercises. Uh, and whenever you Alexander, perform are you one of those yeah. who actually does that? <laughs> I am well. That's okay. Very good question. Because <laughs> I mean, I think Thank it's you. it's admi admirable. Like I, I think I did it a bit in the beginning, and then you know, life. But um, do you do that? Do you train your voice daily, or maybe a few times a week? <laughs> <laughs> the interesting thing is that now that I do so much voiceover from home, yeah. I, I do uh, warm up about 10 minutes before yeah. I go into into my into my booth but I wouldn't say that I did it every day since graduating yeah. from <laughs> drama school yeah and you know when you do shows theater shows obviously yeah. you guys know that very well as well that's when you're you know you're back into, into your real sort of voice strengthening work um, for sure because of the warm-ups you do every day but yeah, not every, every day. However, <laughs> if there's any young graduates listening, yes. <laughs> you should do your voice exercises every day. Do yes. them every day. Yes. Um, and so can you tell us a little bit about your upcoming projects? And of course, these have probably been affected by COVID. Like, give us an idea of your year so far. I mean, I, I would have loved to announce um that i'm going to be playing a juicy role in a big tv series now but unfortunately uh there is only a tv series coming out that i'm in called industry which is going to be uh, on hbo and bbc one coming out in the autumn mm. nice. um but the this year would have been uh, another jungle year with uh some oh, more performances right. yeah it would have been some more performances in new york and then we would have been in washington right now actually wow. mm performing in the in the Shakespeare theater out there uh, which would have been mm. super cool because it was it's really close to the capital uh capitol and we would have done a real um it would have become a, a proper political event and it, it was going to be yeah. you know 
a pre-election event uh, about oh, wow. you know refugees, migration, um, racism, and we had really really cool talks planned, and lots of politicians were going to come, and we were even crossing our fingers to get AOC to come, but yeah, all of that. Ah, <gasps> oh, wow, didn't happen. So um, so that was that. And COVID, yeah, I mean, you guys must have all, we we were all in the same, in the same boat, in the same situations that we were just stripped of all our work um, from mm. yeah. pretty much one day to the next, which was a, a scary place to be in, to say the least. Yeah. I mean, look, if, uh, there was, I know a lot of people that they just froze, right? So it, mm. it just, yeah. all, of their, all of their money all of a sudden disappeared. A lot of the, the government support um, came out much or came much much later universal mm, yeah. credit was the only thing that was on the cards and some people were just genuinely struggling with with the whole situation and yeah. i remember the first two or three weeks i was a little bit unnerved as well and then mm. i just you know thought at what, what what do i do best well voiceovers then let's just invest and and just finally do what i've been meaning to do for years is just create a really good well-functioning home studio and then that's what i did over the course of about two months uh, with lots and lots of research and 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 um, lots and lots of tips from from various industry people and then that really that's what got me you know over the f over the not really the finish line because it's not done yet but that's what helped me to to survive really? basically yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah I ended up doing quite a lot of voiceover work from home and then we did a web series with my film collective um, sort of a web comedy series nice and then i did some workshops you know and then that way so tried to keep myself busy but in the meantime you know f fully aware of of other people's situations so For i sure. sneaked out to do volunteering uh in the height of the pandemic to work f uh, at a food bank which um was my girlfriend is a beautiful human being <laughs> but she was like why are you going out of the house when everybody's <laughs> staying at everybody's staying at home and you're going to bring, you know, COVID back to the house. And when you come back, jump straight in the shower, you leave the clothes outside, et cetera, et cetera. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to, to do a little something because it was, it was interesting to see how many more people, especially in my neighborhood, I live, I live in, a, in a part of London called Tower Hamlets that is not, it's not a very rich uh, borough at all. And mm -hmm. it, it was interesting to see how many people were, were relying on food bank donations. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Alexander, you recently were in Lebanon volunteering as well, right? Because obviously your family was uh, very directly affected by by the explosion, which happened a few weeks yeah. ago. Yeah, absolutely. Leb Lebanon was, was uh, needed to happen because my mom was in Beirut at the time of the blast. My grandparents, my cousins, my aunts, my oh, grand aunts. Mm -hmm. So, you know, lots. My whole Lebanese family and, and the, the neighborhoods that were struck are sort of the Lebanese Christian neighborhoods that are close to the port uh, where all of uh, the people live that I know. Um, mm. It's a very strange, that's just very Lebanese that it's divided into sort of sectarian neighborhoods and mm. you have the Christian neighborhoods and then some neighborhoods where you have Sunnis and Shiites living together and some neighborhoods where you only, only have Muslim Shiites and then Druzes. And we have 18 different sectarian groups in Lebanon. So mm. um, they oh. all have their, their places where they live. And uh, and it's just unfortunate that that a lot of the the sort of our neighborhoods got got hit by the blast, and because it had such a ferocity and such strength, it destroyed uh, many 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 places that we love, many bars that we love, museums, art galleries, and also a lot of houses of my my friends, and mm -hmm. the literal total destruction. You know, flats that were just like huge, like um, holes in the wall. And, um, and so that's why I, I went and it was just important to show support 
to mm. my friends and to my family and then also to strangers. And it was amazing to see how the civic society, especially because the state was useless, to be honest with you, especially really? in the first few weeks. Yeah, I mean, completely mm. useless. So it was mm -hmm. a lot of the civic society that put themselves together with NGOs to to mm. be there on the ground and they would send out volunteers. There was a place called Base Camp where um, different NGOs had put themselves together. They had a proper database when you arrived as a volunteer where you signed up. And then they uh, gave, gave you kit, you know, like gloves and helmets and, and brooms. And then they assigned you to uh, other volunteers. And then you walked out, w went out to missions with these random strangers to people's homes to help them clear up the rubble and, mm. you know, the glass and all of that. And, and those were really beautiful experiences with, with total strangers. You then spend three hours uh, at someone's home and then you'd come back sweating because it's 34 degrees and 90% humidity. But... <laughs> uh, there was a there was a sense of you know even though it was very very sad to see all the destruction at least there was a real sense of of unity which was which was nice and mm. a sense of hope as well or is it still too early and not too so much not so much because unfortunately Lebanon is struck by a really bad financial crisis so the the, yeah. the yeah. state is closed the back the bankruptcy. Uh, and on top of that, the sort of the corrupt leading uh, ruling mm. class and the, 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 the system, political system that we have is, is very, very flawed. And all the people in power um, have essentially led the country to ruins. And um, on top of that, there is certain sectarian tensions and certain groups within the country that are not only political groups, but also armed groups. Mm. And that makes it very, very complicated to have a united country. Yeah. So all of these things mixed together, plus COVID, because <laughs> yeah. there was a real yeah. rise in cases. Uh, that was just a real beautiful recipe for, for, for some tricky times. Yeah, For sure. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to, um, to chip in and, and just ask a few questions about your, your experience of working in different places, really. Um, yeah. We touched on earlier that your career has been really international. I wondered, what do you think the UK arts industry, what are its strengths and weaknesses compared to to its neighbours? In terms of the arts here, if you think about the amount of, and I mean, this is London, right? Because my my most of my experiences are in London, but the amount of, of, of art that you can find in London is, is incredible. And the, the amount of different types of art, the amount of art galleries, I think there is a real there is a real respect for art in this mm -hmm. country which which I love. I just wish that this respect would be mirrored by the governments that are in power, especially you know the conservative governments yeah um, mm -hmm. I think that Italy, if you think about Italy, if you think about Germany, France, if you think about Belgium, the levels of subsidies that the state give to to the arts and especially theaters are huge, whereas in the UK, it's mainly about commercial income. So mm. obviously now when, when COVID happened, um, you, you saw the impact of that on, on some big theaters here in the UK, how, how quickly they went bust despite some of the government support. Mm. So it's just, yeah, I don't know. Just to have a bit of a, you know, to have the government just be a little bit more appreciative of the amazing art scene that they have in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, obviously, COVID has had a huge impact on this industry, as many others. But before that, there were big political and social changes that were impacting it already. I wondered, how have the last few years impacted you professionally, but also personally? And I'm obviously thinking particularly of Brexit. Yeah, 
Brexit was 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 tough to be honest. Brexit was a, a tough cookie to. Uh, I don't know what the expression to bite into. Bite into the cookie crumbles, whatever. But it didn't make sense. I was thinking <laughs> I about into it. yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then I was like, oh, shit, I don't know what I want to say. No, <laughs> no but um, yeah, <laughs> Brexit was it was tough. It was tough to accept. Um, and mm-hmm. also, it just it came. It didn't come out of nowhere, but it's just when it arrived and it happened. It actually happened. It, it was a yeah. real slap in the face, and it was a real eye opener. Real shocker, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a real shock. Just that. Okay, maybe, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe just the, the sort of relationship that you thought you had with this country is maybe not is is, is not as as rosy as you, as you thought it was and maybe you just yeah you need to rethink a little bit but it's not you know it's it's often the people that we surround ourselves with which which are often people in our fields um mm-hmm. very multicultural very international mm-hmm. uh, here in london it's mm-hmm. just we, we live in our own little bubble and maybe we don't realize what the pulse of the country actually is for sure so what it what it has done and what is very positive is that it has politicized a lot of a lot of young kids and the younger generation because there was a real apathy to politics in this country especially when i was studying politics at uni um, and even at drama school and i th- i feel that now maybe too much because now all of a sudden everybody has a political opinion and everybody is a political analyst but at least people <laughs> are talking about you know real real matters and urgent matters and, and and are and are ready to vote and are and are politicized and i think that's that's really important mm-hmm. but um in terms of what it, what it does it, there's still so many of us here and now i'm talking about migrants and internationals um in in london especially i just had to look it up because i i was just interested to see how many eu nationals live in london and apparently in july 2019 there was still 993,000 mm. eu nationals living in london um and around 70 37% of the population living in london was was born outside of the uk Mm. And that's according to the House of Migration Statistics of this year. Mm. And that's not really reflected that's not really reflected in any in any shows or any TV or anything. Right. Um, no, yeah. 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 So, so London is always it's yeah. And now there's a change, it's starting to open up when it comes to the whole BAME debate. And obviously that's a term that's controversial in itself. Yeah. But you're seeing a lot more castings that are there's a lot more um more inclusion happening. But from an EU nationals perspective, it's uh it's still a very pretty closed shop. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, do you feel less welcome here since since the Brexit vote? Or you said you sort of feel very surrounded by a much more welcoming community. Has that has that protected you from that? Genuinely, do I feel less welcome by the people around me? No. Do I feel less welcome as just a sort of level of consciousness in terms of what I read and hear and see? Mm. Uh, yes, but it's got nothing to do with the people that I encounter or engage with on a mm-hmm. day-to-day yeah. basis. I have not, and you know, I have to hold my hand up. I do look, let's say, I don't look extremely foreign, so I can yeah. pass for whatever. I've, I have never been sort of racially abused in this country. There might have been the odd mm-hmm. sort of Hitler jokes, you know, or German Nazi jokes in football environments. But other than that, right. nothing, nothing, nothing really, nothing major. Yeah. So, so yeah, no, to answer your question, no, I, I've not felt directly unwelcome at all. Um, that's why it's even more staggering. What was interesting is going to, I, I went to Westminster a lot before the referendum yeah. and just, uh, just to have a look at the, just to speak to the people uh, that were demonstrating outside of Westminster, especially the Brexiteers. And, um, 
even they would often start off their arguments by saying, I have nothing against EU nationals or I have nothing against Germans, but, you know. Mm. Um, but even they didn't say, like, get out of my country, you know, so. Yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, I, I certainly feel and I've heard others say um, quite a lot that London has sort of le- lost its shine a bit. Um, you know, certainly... Yeah. I, th- I think back to kind of 2012 and the Olympics and just this sense of hope and celebration of what a sort of cultural melting pot and just a, a vibrant mm. place this city was. And I wondered if that, you know, if you, if that resonated with you, if you felt that it was a less appealing place to live now. You're so right. I remember very vividly those I think it was planes flying over London at the, when, at the inauguration of the, the 2012 Olympics. I was in Camden in a bar and everybody was so excited. We were all watching on TV screens and there was, you know, lots of friends who were dancing in the, mm. in the Olympic stadium. And you're so right. There was a real buzz. And there's always been a buzz around London. You know, whenever you tell people you live in London, it's such a cool city. But yeah, it's, it, London has lost some of its appeal mm. um, for sure in the last few years. To, due to various reasons, including Brexit. Um, and I think that's not, that's not going to change. If, if anything, there's going to be more and more sort of emigration, mm. people moving away mm, from London. Especially if the hard Brexit happens, which likely to. You know, if the hard Brexit happens with, with the financial crisis, with people just not being able to, people yeah. just can't afford to live in this city mm. anymore. Yeah. And it's, and it's like you said, it's not so much the direct encounters we have, especially us here in London. It's it's more the climate as well in 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 the papers and the things you read about uh, in the rest of the country where there is a there's more of a discomfort now. Yeah. At being foreign, yeah. you mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because like the first time I set foot in London in my early 20s I was like, "Oh my god, this is where I need to be because I'm so mixed and so I felt home because it is so mixed here, right?" And then I yeah. I step into the industry and because of what we were saying about it not being inclusive enough, suddenly I felt so othered in a place I came to because it felt like home because it was so mixed. So that there's like complete disconnect between like the politics and the reality of the city. And then that it feels like that mm-hmm. has grown bigger, the disconnect. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That has definitely I yeah. think that has definitely grown bigger into into a much sort of vaster, wider beast, you know, than than it was before, mm-hmm. and the, the sort of yeah sense of anti anti sentiment that maybe was there before, but I had never felt it. Mm-hmm. Or, or I had never, I'd, yeah, I'd never heard about it to that extent um, at all. I think yeah. it's also a disconnect between London and other parts of the country, right? Just yeah. that this there's a conversation that's maybe not happening, and that's that's a real problem with our politics and with our media mm-hmm. and so much else in this country that it is there isn't sort of two way communication between London and the rest of the country, and that's just built up. That's very true, and that's a huge criticism that you hear from various various different parts of the country. I think especially in the northeast, like around Yorkshire or mm. you know where yeah where just there's much higher levels of unemployment and, and people just feel like everything good always goes to, towards London and everything always centers around London. Mm-hmm. But what about us? Yeah. Yeah. You're, yeah. You're right. Yeah. But that's not our fault. No, no, but it has been reflected in our industry with the centralization of it. When rep theater used to be 
one of the core elements of this industry, and it had a huge importance for actors and for communities uh, throughout the country. And that has diminished a lot over the years. And all the casting directors, you know, so many of them are now just in London. And so anyone out, outside of London is immediately excluded in a way. And it, with self-tapes, it has helped, but it's certainly not a long-term solution. There needs to be more than just that. That's true. And I think that's definitely the rep theater disappearance is, is definitely something that has made a difference because regional theaters, the importance of regional theaters was sort of knocked down a little bit. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's, a, I mean, so many cool, big, big, really cool theaters around yeah. the UK. And oh, they yeah, still really? get, you know, UK, UK one tours, et cetera, that come. But mm -hmm. yeah, but it's all, often stuff just starts. The core of it is always in London. You're right. Yeah. 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 So you've, uh, I'm interested because you obviously have lived in Birmingham as well as London. And do you feel very much that England or the UK is your adoptive country rather than just London being your adoptive city? Oh, that's a good question. To be honest, I I, I really enjoyed living in Birmingham and I, I felt the Brummies were, were really nice down to earth people. And I used to work in supermarkets at uni um, to, yeah, just to get extra money. And it was always with Brummies. I don't know. I had a really good time up there. But uh, if you'd asked me now, if I identify, had you asked me that question before Brexit, I would have said, yeah, I mean, England is my adoptive country. Now I would say London is my adoptive city. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. So where or what does home mean to you? That's uh, um, Home is, <laughs> is complex and complicated for me because I come from, like I have many different homes and, and my, my heart beats for many different cities. And it used to be a question, especially when in relation to nationality or where are you from, um, that I used to struggle with and sometimes feel slightly guilty about the fact that I didn't really have a home per se. Mm -hmm. But home is where my 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 parents live in Brussels because that's where I grew up and I still they you know there's still my kids' room there, so that's <laughs> technically my home if you think about it as a construct and just you know the house as a home. But then uh, but then I love. You know, I love being in Lebanon and I feel at home when I'm there. And I love being in, in Germany and in Hamburg, especially where, where my father's from. And I love being in Argentina and where, where my entire Argentinian family is. So there's always, you know, sometimes they say home is where your heart is. And mm -hmm. that, I think that's, mm -hmm. that, that, that there's definitely some elements of truth mm -hmm. in that for sure. It's what you make of it, really. Yeah. So you've, you've been, um, you've lived here quite a while. What is the most British thing about you? I mean, I love pints, but I think that's <laughs> people in general. Yeah. It's just that, you know, my, my girlfriend's from Spain and you, you, you go in Spain, you, you get what you, you call a ca una caña, which is just a, mm. a tiny little glass with a bit of beer. And it's mm. when you used to a pint, it's just you're like slightly underwhelmed by the amount of beer that's in that little side. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and, and yeah, just saying, saying sorry for, for uh, the smallest things. Um, yes, mm -hmm. good one. Uh, public environments where it doesn't necessarily warrant an, an apology, but it just comes out. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, so true. I hadn't thought of that one. Yeah, that's a really British one. And what do you think is the least British thing? What do you what behavior makes you stand out a bit? Um, I would say I'm just on a, on a home level, just eating at nine p.m. like having dinner mm. at nine. Yeah, which is just a very, very Spanish Middle Eastern way. thing. Yeah, or Middle Eastern, yeah. yeah. Oh, exactly. 
Mediterranean, just eating late mm. and uh, and and physical. I like to feel people, and that's very Lebanese. Like Lebanese, mm. we you know we hug. Sometimes you'll even see men like holding hands, but they're just mm. friends, you know, or they'll like lay on top of each other on a sofa, but they're just really good mates. <laughs> Whereas in Germany and in England, for example, I mean, I've had it so many times that even with just when you just go in for a kiss to say hi to a girl, and 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 she she sort of startles a little bit. She like you know does a little body movement to move away from you and, and she's not too sure how to deal with your with your cheek coming towards her and all, all you're doing is just, you know, you just want to give her a kiss, which in Belgium, France and plenty of other countries we do mm. and then they just extend their hand and you're like, oh yeah, true. Mm, so yeah. Shake hands. And with, you know, so that's, I'm, I'm not sure I've ever kissed a British man hello as well. I'm trying to remember, oh, but that's a very... Next level. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't even try that. I'm not sure that. <laughs> I mean, you could try. Yeah, yeah, you could try. Yeah. Ben, if we ever have like a migrative launch, like when it's all COVID is behind us, you better watch out because we're gonna we're come at you with the, the kiss. French with kisses, the kisses. Yeah. French kisses, there. <laughs> kisses. Exactly. Hopefully, it'll be post COVID. Exactly. Yes, post COVID. Post COVID. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I'll just wear a mask anyway. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just um finally then turning to the future um obviously it's a really really challenging time for probably most people and um also a lot of people are using this time to think about what they what they want from society and how we can innovate and improve and renew what are your hopes for the future um there's i feel like for the moment, at least, there's there's a huge amount of of division amongst us, and a huge amount of fear being spread around. Mm. And you always wonder whether us in the arts, you know, we we will be able to to sort of reunite bigger pockets of society th through our art. Mm. Um, and there's a hope that you know that that we can do that through movies, through theater, and that level of humanity to just some, it's just we often nowadays because of the discourse of the media and what we get fed online and because of algorithms that work in a certain way where you go online, you, you know, you go into Google, you, you open certain pages and you have this algorithm that just feeds into your fear 24 seven. Mm. And then we just, we just, we're so hell bound on stuff that divides us and on stuff that, you know, on, on how different we are instead of just really focusing on on what unites us mm. and i know there's it's it's easier said than done but um but it starts with micro gestures you know every time you just engage with someone especially when it's maybe someone who's not as fortunate as you to just look into your their eyes and just engage on a very human level and just speak to them and and just look at see see into the soul of the person that is standing in front of you and if you, if you just do that, just a micro level, just little, little, little steps, little, little things like this on a day to day, I think it can make a big, a big difference and a big impact. Hmm. Yeah. That feels, it feels so achievable when you put it like that, doesn't it? It's um, something we can all work towards. I agree. I mean, I would love to, let's say I would love to eradicate poverty, right? Or I would love <laughs> to educate everyone uh, to the same level. Or mm. And these are amazing concepts. And I think if this is something that you feel on a grander scale, that this is something that you want to you, you wanna work towards, or at least you, you want to be part of history and, and shape you know, the future in that way, mm -hmm. then that's fantastic. And you should do that. But what's, like you said, what's, what's more attainable and that can help you to attain your bigger goal 
um, is to just to just do do micro gestures on a day to day basis, mm. little, little gestures of kindness, little moments of of empathy and understanding for the other, and and that will already make a big difference. And I think that in the last few years, for me at least, there's been a bit of a shift. In my twenties, I was still very focused on myself, and as actors, even though you see a lot of actors being very actives you know in with charities um that's mm. generally actors who have the means to be active yeah. with charities the ones the ones who don't they're in survival mode mm. and it's it's quite an egocentric job that we do as actors because yeah. we're very focused on ourselves how can we grow i need to do a workshop to become better and i need to do this and that and it's always me 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 and then sometimes we forget a little bit that there's a, a big wide world around us and maybe if we as actors who are very empathetic and visceral and emotional people if we can be quote-unquote better human beings then i guess uh, the rest could follow who knows <laughs> mm, absolutely mm. i think that's a really lovely note to end on actually yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sure no i think it's lovely that you you decided to to do this i'm really looking forward to listening to what other you know, migrants uh, and other performers uh, have said, and I think it's very, very important at this time now to have these conversations. Hmm. Um, well, thank you. Just one, one last thing, if I can add it, um, is just that the funds that I'm raising money for right now, it's yes. called the Beirut Musicians Fund and the Theatre Relief Fund, Beirut Theatre Relief Fund. And I'm pretty sure that even in a month or two months' time, they will, if, if people type in Beirut Musicians Fund or theater relief fund beirut that there's still there'll still be ways of donating in case anyone wants to do that for the arts in beirut amazing and i, I really appreciate it thank you so much if you would like to donate to the funds alexander mentioned you can find the links in this episode's show notes you've been listening to migratives a podcast produced by woven voices migratives is created and hosted by zachary fall Ben Weaver Hinks, and me, Nadia Cavell. Our music is by Guy Hughes, and our artwork is designed by Lucy Stapleton Smith. To support the podcast, you can rate, review, and subscribe on the platform of your choice. And to find out more about our work, follow Woven Voices on social media or check out our website, wovenvoices.org.